and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. Tracy Alloway is out this week, unfortunately. Uh, but with me in the studio here for today's episode, I have Bloomberg macro strategist Cameron Kreiss and Bloomberg cross asset reporter Luke Kawa. And I'm very excited to talk to both of them because we are going to do our year in review of markets or basically just talk about what the heck happened in markets this year, because I think it was one of the most interesting times for markets across many asset classes that we've uh, had in several years, maybe most interesting since 2011 or the financial crisis, or maybe at least 2015, 2016. Uh, And I think a lot of people have uh, questions about what's going on. So hopefully we will try to answer them. So Cameron and Luke, thank you very much for joining us. Always a pleasure. So it's always tough to disentangle reasons for market moves. And Cameron, I think you're one of the most strident in sort of pushing back against any attempt to do that at all. Nonetheless, this year was characterized by a very sharp turn starting in early October, where we saw some major winners just completely fall out of bed, tech stocks, U.S. equities, which had been doing pretty well up until then, just uh, started getting relentlessly destroyed. What happened? Well, I think you need to look actually back to February because we right. had a very similar phenomenon right. in February. Uh, and the, the genesis was broadly similar, I think, in both instances where you had uh, a performance, a very good equity market performance that was punctuated with uh, a sharp rise in market interest rates, say right. the 10-year yield, uh, and at the same time, inflammatory rhetoric from the U.S. president vis-a-vis trading relationships with China. And that is kind of a potent and lethal cocktail for risky assets. And you had a market that was out over its skis. And if you, you might not be old, neither one of you are probably old mm-hmm. enough to remember the old wild wor- wide world of sports intro where there was a ski jumper. I remember you that. Know, the, nope. agony, yeah, <laughs> the, the thrill of victory in January and over the summer, and then the agony of defeat yeah. in sort of February and, and then October. Uh, thenceforth. And so when people try to say, oh, is it the Fed? Is it uh, trade? Basically, you can't really it, it's, say. It's I think it's a other. combination of a, of a number of things. I mean, we need to take a step back and remember that the Fed is in the midst of a tightening cycle. Monetary policy has gone from unquestionably accommodative to arguably neutral. We had a similar phenomenon, obviously, in 1994, 2005. In both of those years, Fed tightening years, the multiple of the S&P 500 mm. fell pretty sharply. And this was just, I think, to some extent, the latest iteration of that phenomenon. Luke, come in here. When we when we write the story of this year, the story of this year will be the huge blow up of the short ball trade, of the trade that essentially you could make your living easily from early 2016 through January 2018. Uh, early in the year, we had pretty much every equity bourse in overbought territory. And, you know, things were great. We blew past everyone's uh, everyone's S&P 500 target or at least like a quarter of analyst targets within the first five sessions. And then it all blew up. And then at two other points this year, two other large market moves that you can attribute to uh, really the the perils that can befall you when you sell options, when you sell volatility, the drastic fall in crude and the drastic rise in natural gas that wiped out uh, right. optionseller.com <laughs> that I, I think. I think this year is a, is a year we learned how dangerous options can be or if, you know, people 
who needed a reminder of that lesson over the past couple of years, this is where you you really learned it because there's not there's nothing like you know your February uh, and then recently what we've had in crude and natural gas. And I think that speaks to a theme that old grumpy people like <laughs> me like to talk about, which is as financial markets have become younger and younger, you've sort of winnowed out people who have seen previous rate hike cycles and know what a rate hike cycle looks like, and typically it is associated with higher volatility. So, so it's the kids, it's, the, hey, it's, it's well, all the youth. Get, the Canadian get, off my, get off my lawn <laughs> and quit selling options, kids. The, well, the Canadian millennials have already traded through how, a bear market, though. So that narrative, I'd like to How <laughs> much is the sort of death of the short vol trade connected to changing Fed policy and a less accommodative, uh, a, a tightening cycle, basically? I, 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 find, it, I find it less so, just... Uh, Given how you know the the trade did kind of uh, blow up spectacularly, and we went on to then eat price in even more you know Fed tightening uh, through through euro dollars for calendar 2019 than we had at the time but, of, and that the fact that you know if we were thinking this is you know a rates fall transmission, we still haven't gotten rates fall. So I'm I'm wondering the extent to which this will be a 2019 story in which rates fall really amplifies the uh, the equity vol because I'm not sure that's happened yet this year. I think we also have to look at, we're so used to relying on monetary policy as our sort of signals. Let's not forget the importance of fiscal policy because we had the big tax cut passed at the end of last year. We were having a blowout in the fiscal deficit of the United States. This year, what that's that's meant uh, much higher issuance, uh, both at the long end of the curve and the short end. And that short end issuance, T-bill issuance, has squeezed liquidity Hmm. to a degree. And at the same time, the Fed is engaging in what's popularly known as quantitative tightening, um, which I don't think necessarily has a direct impact on, say, equity prices, but it does make short-term liquidity conditions less um, ample less ample than they have been over the, over the last few years. So we've kind of had... Uh, to, I, we started the year with markets really excited about the earnings potential created by the tax cut, uh, and the rest of the year, to some extent, has been about if you will, the negative externalities of the tax cut in terms of the deficit and what that's meant for fixed income markets. One of the things you said uh, in your first answer is that what characterized recent volatility starting in October and what characterized the volatility spike we saw in February was the fact that unlike in previous uh, sell-offs in the post-crisis era, we saw people selling treasuries at the same time. So that if you have a diversified portfolio, some stocks, some uh, treasuries, you were losing on both sides. You weren't getting that natural cushion. What changed there? Why hasn't this year up until, I guess, uh, maybe sort of December, why hasn't it been the case that when equity volatility spiked, people went to treasuries as a safe haven? Well, I think to some extent this issuance dynamic and the and the um, and the deficit um, played a part. You know, you also have a new Fed chair right. chairman in place this year who essentially got in the seat and came across as more hawkish as his last couple of predecessors. Yes, the Yellen Fed did hike rates three times last year and initiate the balance sheet roll down process, but I think. People had this underlying belief that, listen, you know, we know that if, if the stock market rolls over, you know, Janet's got your back. And there hasn't been this sense, I think, that, that uh, the Powell Fed has got your back until very recently. But, Luke, 
even with the market volatility, the U.S. eco data looks good. And of course, ultimately, the Fed's <clears throat> the Fed has a dual mandate. It's uh, employment and inflation. It's not the stock market. And on its uh, dual mandate, the thing it's officially charged to do, things are still looking okay. Yeah, right? Like we've got, well, we've been at full employment since, you know, you can rewind the clock. Some people think we've been there for, for three years. We still keep managing to print well over 100K. Inflation, you know, around 2% uh, by by most preferred measures. And I, I think this is something that, you know, you and I have talked a lot about this year is also characterize that macroeconomic vol, you know, throw out your kind of your turkey shocks uh, and your outside U.S. stocks. Uh, the, the macroeconomic volatility of the U.S. economy has not been uh, large that whatsoever. However, you know, it seems to speak to more changes in market structure for why we're able to get these uh, these moves that do make us think that something is going what do you suddenly mean awry. Changes in and market structure. I. Mostly the I, w- I would uh, bow to Cam here and the the withdrawal of liquidity uh, post crisis regulation that are making it essentially market making is is less of a thing. Bank balance sheets are not uh, really extended to to the same extent and the, and the rise of passive money. All of this allows mm. you to I think have sharper market moves. And the thing I wonder is if you're an active manager in this environment. Uh, is generating alpha more a matter of when you get in than what you buy just because of how the liquid markets have been and how sharp some of the moves we've gotten are? Cameron, you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I think an underappreciated um, factor, and I think it's underappreciated because it's difficult to quantify, is the increased prominence of quantitative strategies as well, whether it's vol targeting strategies, which isn't quite the same as, as the vol selling stuff, um, but it's it's kind of the sort of the redheaded cousin, uh, if if you will, where there's this uh, requirement when the stock market declines for for these types of strategies to to sell futures essentially to reduce its portfolio risk, and then the risk parity stuff, which is a um, a common sort of bogeyman in the in, in the closet. And going back to your your previous question yeah. about stocks and bonds and, and right. sort of falling in tandem, they are a, a popular um, cause for that because they they tend to be, they own stocks and they own generally own a lot of bonds. And when bonds start to fall, then they have to de-risk everything and they sell everything. Um, who knows how much of it is down to these guys, but they're, they're, they're certainly, they weren't there 20 years ago right. and they are there now. So it is at least one change. In the market structure, I'm I'm picturing you tweeting that and Cliff Asnes seeing your tweet and him freaking out about efforts to blame the computers. Well, funny enough, you mentioned Cliff Asnes. Uh, I noticed that the AQR risk parity is no mutual, longer uh, mutual fund. They're changing their name. They're disbranding. You know, they're yeah. they're removing the risk parity name. So, I mean, that maybe that's ringing the bell for the bottom of this phenomenon. Capitulation. Like, I I don't know. Can we talk about the the year in trading and the year in markets in 2018 without talking about the effect that just the trade issue has had both stateside and on yeah, the broader outlook? That. Like I, you can take it. You can take your pick whether it really started in March with steel or really escalated later in May. But it seems as though everyone was calling for 2018 to be a year of convergence, and the rise of the trade issue completely blew that up. Yeah, I mean, it's been one of the the stories of, of the year. And what markets hate above everything else is uncertainty, right? And that's what we've had with this, this trade story. What, you know, will it be resolved? When will it be resolved? 
Will there be, will the tariffs that Trump has announced be enacted? Will there be new tariffs announced and then enacted? Will we have a deal? If so, what will it look like? Oh, who are we going to arrest next? Uh, it's, it's become very, very difficult. And I think you look at the UK and the Brexit fiasco, which we haven't talked about yet, as another example of uncertainty. And look at how that's impacted uh, British markets, both the stock market, where the yeah. multiple of the FTSE has gone down by 27% this year, which is a heck of a lot more than most other markets. And then obviously the pound, which has been, well, pounded. An, an interesting story with trade is that as the issue's been raised, Mainly, you saw whenever it was having an effect on markets, it would have an effect on a sector basis within the U.S. You know, you sell your industrials, you try and hide out in small caps. Uh, But then on on the global level, it was happening more on the index level, a.k.a. sell everything but U.S., China, especially underperforms. Yet from the beginning, we've had you know this inkling or this idea that we were going to move into tech sometime, that this was going to be about tech, that this was eventually going to become about IP, supply change and semis. And one thing we've noticed since the recent trade truce, if you want to call it, is that you're starting to see more effects of trade play out on the index level in the U.S. So that's one story that has been a 2018 story that is changing as we head into the tail end of the year. Uh, I'm glad you brought up Brexit and the international situation, because even while U.S. stocks were doing fairly well up until early October, the international scene was pretty ugly, particularly emerging markets this year. And I think it's pretty remarkable because I think even as recently as January, we were still talking about global synchronized growth. I don't remember when we stopped, but I think it was earlier this year, which just seems like I can't believe that was 2018 that global synchronized growth was a phrase that people was on people's tongues because it just seems like such ancient history. Yeah, I remember going on your <clears throat> excuse me, on your television show in, in late January, and the uh, the H shares that the yeah. China Enterprise Index hadn't gone down in almost a month. Like right. it literally had gone up every single day. Now, yeah. obviously, that sort of thing can't persist forever. And like all great parties, you know, the hangover is usually pretty pretty vicious, which it's been. Uh, this time around. You know, it's interesting because I think most people would focus on the trade stuff as being a reason for this um, this underperformance of emerging markets. And that to some extent, that's true. But there's a couple of other issues as well. One is the lagged effects of China's own deleveraging process, which began last year, which is in the absence of any trade tension with the U.S., was always going to slow China's economy this year. And that obviously ripples through the rest of the world, particularly the emerging world, who sell to China. Uh, And two, the hangover of dollar borrowing, which Luke alluded to a little bit, uh, the dollar dollar borrowing over the last sort of six, seven years by emerging market countries with large external vulnerabilities, the Turkeys, the Mm, Argentinas, the Indonesias of the world. And as liquidity is withdrawn from them, I think that ripples through the system as well. Yeah, it was it was kind of interesting in the early stages of trade heating up. Uh, you know, everyone expects the textbook tells you that you know this sh- should have been dollar positive. It wasn't quite in the early stages. The figuring out the dollar this year has just been you know kind of a headache. At the beginning of the year, 
we were, you know, it was all about twin deficits going to drive the dollar, going to weaken the dollar. And then, you know, at a certain point, we said, you know, real rate differential, growth differential. It's all going to be about strength of the U.S. dollar. And, and that's something that's that's weighed on EMs. Also, the big underperformance of bat stocks, your Baidu, your mm. Alibaba and your Tencent. Like in the U.S. It's these are for those who these are huge Chinese. These, these are companies. huge Chinese Internet companies that also have a big weight in emerging market equity indexes. And when you think about how like early in the year we were worried about the potential for Facebook to really get regulated to come under the crush there. That hasn't happened. Congress has been kind of a joke on that. If anything happens, it's been in Europe. Yet in China, they're actually like cracking down on Tencent's ability to, to offer new games. So they've been swimming against, you know, a regulatory headwind as well as a slowing growth headwind as well as a you know equity market that's coming under trade pressure headwind. Uh, going back to something you mentioned, Cameron, about, again, I think it was when you mentioned Brexit, but something I've been thinking about is, okay, markets hate uncertainty. And there's uncertainty really everywhere you look. And I think there's a real dearth of institutions or individuals that you can look to that you could say, okay, I feel like really confident that they've got a handle on this. We all know we don't need to talk about our president and his, uh, you know, his Twitter habit. We have a new Fed chair who uh, strikes me as very competent, but also inconsistent at times. And I think it's hard to um, like figure out the Powell doctrine or what the Powell, Powell worldview looks like. There was a point earlier this year where I thought, oh, he might actually be more dovish than Janet Yellen. Then there was a point where it's like, well, he seems more hawkish than Janet Yellen. It's hard to put a finger on him. And then you look, of course, at uh, Brexit and, you know, you can't have any confidence in any institution there. Talk about that, what that does to the markets when there's just no institution that someone could say, okay, the adult is going to step in the room and set a uh, clear, clear uh, policy path forward. We could feel confident it'll be executed. Well, I'll take a small issue with your uh, with your preamble there. I think Powell has generally been fairly consistent. You can argue that he maybe overstepped a little bit in early October with his comments about long um, way, a lot being a long way from neutral. But I think if you look at that context, that comment in the context of what he was saying at Jackson Hole, uh, the symposium yeah. in August, which is that the whole concept of neutral interest rates, particularly in real time, is kind of specious. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not sort of a line in the sand that you approach it, and then as soon as you step over, different things happen. The best you can say, it's kind of a range, and you only know in retrospect what neutral really was. So I'm going to give him a little bit of a pass there. And okay. frankly, I, I find him quite refreshing because he speaks relatively plainly. And I think generally he's been fairly upbeat about the state of the economy right. throughout, throughout, the, throughout the course of the year. So uh, maybe I'm just uh, no, I, incli- I, I, inclined to give a, a plain speaker a bit of a, a, bit of a but tick. I like the plain But in terms of the, you know, the, effect on insti- the effect when you start to question or worry about institutions, I think there was a while there in early October where there was a popular narrative that you know, the Fed's going to hike until something breaks. I think everything from October 3rd to now has been 
trying to put that issue to bed and them trying to say like, hey, if the data weakens, we're going to respond. We're not dead set on moving very quickly. They've done a good job of retaining uh, that optionality. But to, to the larger point of what does it mean for markets when you start to you know question institutions? Well, you talked about the FTSE re-rating. We've talked about the S&P 500 re-rating despite earnings growth. It seems like you just pay less for each dollar of earnings because you're not as uh, confident in the in the backdrop. That yeah. seems to be one effect. I mean, ultimately, uncertainty and lack of confidence in institutions requires a higher risk premium right. across across assets, across currencies. I mean, obviously, currencies, it's it's a bit difficult because you have to you have to buy something. Right. You know, if you buy euro dollar, you you have to buy one. You trade right. euro dollar, you have to buy one to sell sell the other. I mean, maybe you could argue gold, but even gold has been pretty. Eh. I mean, given the apparent manifest risks across it markets, is. it's been pretty meh this, this year. That has been one of the funny um, jokes of the year, hasn't it? Well, hey, real not, rates, real not, rates. Not not as funny as Bitcoin, which <laughs> well, yeah. I, I well, yeah. you know, we should. Well, probably, let's not talk about yeah, that. No, oh. let's, <laughs> That's been it. That's been that's been probably my favorite part of the year was the uh, the demise of the Lambo crowd. Hey, there's there's a popular long long Bitcoin short the bankers trade uh, that's currently in early December on a six week losing streak. Even as banks have gotten absolutely pummeled, that kind of speaks to how bad it's been for Bitcoin. But I think one of the and we'll see how it plays out over the next year or two. But I think what's been a change this year talking about institutions is the first time in a long time yeah. that you've had the president of the United States overtly criticizing yes. the Fed and Fed policy and i think if you had gone back 5 years ago and you you know you know change the names to protect the innocent or or whatever you know whatever the stock uh, yeah. disclaimer is on those reality tv shows uh, if you had said if you had put the quotes that we've had from Donald Trump uh, this year vis-a-vis the Fed and shown them to people and said, what will this do to markets? I think they would have said, well, you're going yeah, to right. see a lot of volatility and you're going to see the stock market lower. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there's a tendency to just kind of wave Trump off and say, well, it's just Trump being Trump. But you know, eventually this, this stuff kind of matters. Yeah. Um, and maybe we were just accustomed last year to nothing mattering. Even you know, uh, I mean, North Korea tests. Yeah, and, don't matter. <laughs> and let's let's let, yeah, let's not forget. Last year was the anomaly. This year right. is not the anomaly. Last year was the anomaly in terms of the absolute absence of of volatility or drawdown or or anything. I mean, the sharp ratio of the S and P or a 60 40, 40 portfolio was way too high relative to history. And so, then this year we got in October the worst month for the 60 40 portfolio since the financial crisis. So that's the kind of our that was our coming full well, circle. Every moment. party has a hangover. Yep. And as, uh, I, as I learned to my chagrin over the weekend. On uh, <laughs> on that note, I think that is a uh, perfect time to end it. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. My uh, normal co-host, Tracy Alloway, is off this week, but you should still follow her. She's at Tracy Alloway on Twitter. And you should follow our guest. Cameron is on Twitter. He's at Fifth Rule. And Luke is on Twitter. He is at LJ Kawa. And sometimes they banter and go back and forth and argue about all these things that we talk about if you want more. And you should follow our producer, Topher Forhez, on Twitter. He's at T, as well as the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.